0: Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Al.
1: And I'm Grizz. This week we're talking about loneliness. Are we lonelier than ever?
0: And later I'll be speaking to Lawrence Scott, thinker, broadcaster and author of Picnic, Lightning in Search of a New Reality.
1: Why are we talking about loneliness this week?
0: Because I'm lonely. Um, because oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But you are the cause of my loneliness, as you know. Because, um, no, let's not talk about who's being invited to your wedding. Um, let's move on. <laughs> Chris, why are we talking about loneliness?
1: So it may seem counterintuitive to be talking about loneliness when this episode is published. I'll be on my honeymoon, in fact, and you know you'll be surrounded by your loving family and your new baby and. Of course, neither of us is lonely. Looking at all um, your wedding photos but, on
0: Facebook, exactly. Wishing I had <laughs> made the cut.
1: Feeling sad, but no. So talking of sad, seasonal affective disorder is not actually just something that happens in winter. Apparently, you can get, you know, kind of summertime sadness. In the words of Lana Del Rey, "Season
0: of Weddings." Yeah.
1: Exactly. You feel left out.
0: Yes, FOMO. That's what I've got. <laughs> You've got FOMO. It's no longer fear of missing out; it's just missing out, isn't it? <laughs> It's Mo. So is that the only reason why we're talking about loneliness?
1: No, it's not the only reason. I mean, loneliness is on the rise, apparently, more people feel lonely. But I mean, I think people have always felt lonely. I think it's part of what living is.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's, it, it will never go away. But I think we live in a strange time when we live in a much, much more connected world than we ever have before with technology and social media, but also a much more fractured society, perhaps, than ever before as well. That's The speed of life gets faster and faster. People looking at screens is palpably not as good as people looking at faces.
1: We'll be talking to Olivia Lang, author of The Lonely City, which combines a kind of memoir with portraits of different artists who have been lonely and used that in their work
0: and also Joe Ellison, the FT's fashion editor and columnist.
1: So, Olivia, can you tell us what loneliness is? How does it feel? It feels
2: bad. Um, Loneliness is distinct from solitude. We often think that they're the same thing but loneliness is a longing for more connection than you have whereas solitude is just the experience of being alone which can be completely satisfying or desperately distressing depending on whether it's what you want or not. So it it really is about the kind of relationship you would like to be in and whether
1: that's happening for you or not. Jo, are we less lonely now do you think or are we lonelier than ever even? I mean, I'm absolutely no expert in what the kind of
3: statistics are, but I think speaking from kind of where I... at in fashion the sort of need for experiential kind of community based endeavours the opportunities to meet people and to kind of develop communities has never been so prescient across the board and I think that's true of like arts fashion kind of culture in general and they talk about the loneliness epidemic there are more single people ever than before there are more people who are like living on their own definitely we've seen a kind of we're we're in a loneliness crisis definitely
0: I do have some Figures actually we have there are are apparently nine million Britons who suffer from loneliness that's 14% of the population half the disabled population apparently feel lonely at least once a day and elderly people about a third of them feel overwhelmed by it.
2: The statistic I was most shocked by recently was refugees who said that the thing that most is distressing about their experience which you'd think might be about money or contacting relatives is actually loneliness that sense of being a stigmatised population
0: and that's got worse since the Brexit vote absolutely
2: but that again is a sort of sense of community
3: I mean that's I think what's missing so much like whereas everyone always harps on about like we used to go to the church every week and we'd have our Sunday meeting groups so these, these opportunities to kind of meet and communicate with people that we see on a regular basis are just being eroded more and more by the the fact that we work away from our desks more often than we do. We travel on our own more. We're sort of forced to do things that take us out of our community that we weren't expected to do 20 years ago. I think we're just losing, we're just losing our nest or our, our net. I think
0: it's Tory cuts as well and things like public libraries and um, mm. the NHS and social services. Child care like
1: services. Yeah. yeah, and Sure start. Keeping people trapped and in their homes. homes. Instead of trying to plug the gap maybe with virtual connections which i mean i don't know what do you guys think can they can connecting on facebook or instagram make us less lonely
0: or does even it, lonely, does it,
1: it intensify i well, think I it don't can know. do both mm.
2: absolutely that there's a way in which you can make communities of interest even if you're physically very isolated so it can be completely extraordinary for mm. you know the classic the gay teenager in idaho who doesn't have any friends locally but can make yeah. some sense of a community but at the same time the sort of performance all the time of social buoyancy makes people feel like they're failing and that intensifies a feeling of alienation anyway so Mm -hmm. that sort of sense and then the increasing hostility of social media conversation has also just made it much more toxic place to spend time i think
3: I mean, I think increasingly more and more the w- of the work I do is via social media. And I think absolutely I've got a community of friends that I have on Instagram, and less so on Twitter, I think, because I do think that's a more adversarial kind of combative environment. I think Instagram is about sharing and hearts. And so I think ostensibly it's it's a friendlier place to be. Interestingly, actually, my husband stopped using Instagram last week and had this kind of like, kind of you know, he was going to stop. He just didn't want to spend any more time on it. It was too distracting, blah, blah, blah. And three days later, he said, I'm so lonely, and I think he did genuinely feel cut off from people mm. because it's sort of, sort of, forgotten how involved you are in everyone's life and how kind of you can be part of it or just an, a passive observer of it. And when that's removed from you, he just had no idea what was going on, and he said it was absolutely awful and <laughs> went
0: back on. But are you connected in a meaningful way? Because, like, I would have thought you know, you live in a your world is is predominantly fashion, and yeah. your, your husband is a famous <laughs> famous playwright. Um, you know, you uh, you have lots of followers in, on Twitter and things like that. You know, ostensibly, you, I, I bet you go to lots of parties, ostensibly you, <laughs> you strike me as a person who has many friends and m- invited to many things. I think but that it- doesn't necessarily mean that you're not um, lonely in sight.
3: Well I think there's as you say there's a very big difference between solitude and loneliness and I think you know one of the loneliest things I do is going to the fashion shows which for 28 days I'm surrounded by thousands and thousands of people and I spend my entire life making very very sort of small connections with people and t- talking on quite a facile level to that, you know the social interactions are kind of limited to sort of 20 minute intervals between shows and actually you're on your own you go home at the end of the day you write your piece you sit on a bed you eat your dinner on your own because you've got to file copy like it's really like it can be quite a hollow experience but i do think actually that instagram does sort of pep me up a bit in that environment because i kind of feel like well there are some people out there who kind of care what i'm doing like someone's (laughs) Mm. someone's noticing and i think i also think that things like instagram i find fabulous because they just absolutely boulderize any of that small talk Bollocks that we used to have to do. Mm. I mean I can go straight to it. It's like, oh that looked amazing. Your holiday looked fantastic. Like what's that cruise like? How's that place? You know, you go straight to the kind of you cut straight to the chase. So you feel like you have an intimacy with people that possibly mm. you might not have done. But it's what you're prepared to share as well.
2: I think as well, I used to live in New York and a lot of my friends are still there and I would have felt like I dropped out of their lives if it wasn't for social media whereas I'm you know on a day-to-day level being able to see what people are doing just means like you say we can just drop back into the same old swing and that that sort of dissolving of boundaries and borders at a moment when they're being so rarefied in the physical world feels like that's really important.
1: And thinking about New York you write um so beautifully about being lonely but being surrounded and pressed in by all these other bodies do you think that loneliness is kind of intensified in cities almost
2: mm i think there's a way in which there's something about the experience of loneliness that you're so hyper aware of other people seeing you in your loneliness there's so much shame around it and it's so much to do with visibility so there's something about being in Why a city is I think it's it gets really to the core of what we're supposed to be as humans. We're supposed to be social. We're supposed to be successful at making relationships, and that's how we feel content. Most of us
0: so being popular at school is more yeah. important than being
2: yeah, a and it's very shameful to be alone, to be a loser, to be left out, to and be disliked. It's so and yet, it's so common, ridiculously mm. common. It really is such a shared experience. Um, but Yeah, so there's something about being in a city and feeling like everyone can see you. They can see through glass to you in your little box performing your life completely solitarily and that, that feels like it can be a very punishing magnifier of loneliness. That's how I experienced it When at did the you time. first
0: sort of know that you were lonely? Because I think probably it's something oh, that's that creeps, question. I mean I, I think mm. I've been lonely but I've taken time to suddenly be like, oh, actually yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm lonely.
2: Right. I mean it's I'd something. done something quite drastic because the relationship had ended and I'd moved to New York and I didn't know that many people so It didn't really take long to be like, hang on, where are my friends? (laughs) You know, and because I'd sort of cut off those ties of day-to-day work and I'm a writer, so I don't have an office to go to. So it didn't actually take long for the penny to drop. But the thing that also... Even to admit it to yourself. I think admitting it to myself, but also there's a pain associated with it. But at the same time, the sort of writer was like, hang on, this is an experience that is really fascinating but also people won't talk about, people won't admit to the shame sort of acts as a silencer and that made me kind of fascinated by it as well. Do you think also that it's not a kind of condition that you're
3: in constantly, Mm. it's a wave of of, of an emotion that you might feel at various points of the day or that you might feel particularly like, I mean I know that most single people loathe bank holiday weekends because it's the one time when everyone's supposed to have a someone to do something Mm. with and it's those kind of markers that really kind of work it out. So, so you might not feel lonely from Monday to Friday but you might feel profoundly depressed on a Saturday mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. and even worse on Christmas Day. Well,
3: because it's exactly. about
1: expectations and social expectations. Also, the and fact what you that, can do yeah.
2: physically, like if you can work in a cafe Monday to Friday and yeah, feel exactly. like everyone else is alone and then mm-hmm. you go in at the weekend and it's like dads with their kids and their puppies and you just yeah. think oh god, <laughs> this isn't my safe space anymore. But
1: is loneliness ever something that's like a kind of creative ingredient that we can make something from? I mean, you write about Mm -hmm. artists who make work partly about and from loneliness in the book.
2: Yeah, I think it can be such a drive because there's that sense of... There's something inside that isn't being communicated. There's some longing to make some kind of context. And I think it, I don't think it's by any means the only driver of art. But I think for a lot of artists, it has been a driver. And especially for artists like in the book, I talk about Henry Derger, who was a hoarder, a shut-in, very se- sort of separate person who didn't have relationships in his life and really used art as his entire means of communication. So it's got that sort of force of desire behind it so yes I think so.
3: In that weird way though don't you think also when you kind of um, like our parents like my you know our fathers typically would work these very very hard long weeks and they'd come home and they, I was always kind of struck that my father didn't really have any friends like that was always mm-hmm. the thing like what did he do? Sorry, what did he do with himself? And and I think he was quite lonely. And I think you can actually use work to mask a lot of that. So it's a driver, but it's also an obstacle because you mm. kind of fill that kind of empty space with kind of creative output or doing something that you kind of make you busy yourself with something. Mm. But actually, it's still there. I think retirement is quite hard. For I was just going to say, people. what
2: happened to him after he retired? Well, um, he he makes friends. He never <laughs> quite oh, no, it. no no
3: no no. It's fine. But um, I, I think he would have had a horrific retirement unless he'd ha- unless he would have been able to have really kind of radically redressed like his lifestyle but I think it's um, I think for a certain generation of men especially that sort mm-hmm. of baby boomer generation who kind of did a long commute and came home and you know mm-hmm. like did the wife mm-hmm. and two children thing I think they um, I think they are probably having a kind of you know they've entered a crisis period as they've entered retirement mm-hmm. in a way that maybe we're seeing is slightly ameliorated now because everyone's you know the, the workplace has changed so much.
0: Interestingly however apparently there are a higher proportion of women are lonely than men. Does that surprise you?
2: Um, I was surprised. I'm was. Well, suspicious. I think they just don't admit it. Well, they live longer. They're,
0: they're stiff upper lips, mm. so they, they masking live, loneliness. And well, so they, they so. live longer. So if you go yeah. to
3: any kind of nursing home, like I would mm-hmm. say 80% of the residents are usually single women. So, I mean, that probably ups the stats quite well, so significantly.
0: Maybe new mothers and things
3: like that. Well, I mean, mm. postnatal mm. depression is, I think, probably another word for loneliness. I certainly don't think I had postnatal depression, but I was lonely as hell. And it was that awful, two hour kind of like gaps in time where you just have nothing to do except for look after a child or baby and no one really to communicate with and just you're just the the time becomes like so elastic it's unbearable Um, (laughs) and like I mean it's not it wasn't it was just a kind of reality of the day and you have to work out ways to kind of do stuff but I think you know that's the loneliest time in the world and you're with someone constantly like attached (laughs) like literally attached Hmm. to you
0: So is there any way that we think it can be solved. I mean, we have Britain now has a minister of, of loneliness, Tracy Crouch, who incidentally um, refused to come on the podcast. Made me feel a bit
1: <laughs> lonely. lonely. Um,
0: <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, and so, you know, is, is there any point to having.
2: I mean,. I think it's great to tackle social exclusion, especially by things like Sure Start and libraries, which actually have a practical effect. But I am always wary of these sort of campaign to end loneliness things because I think in some way they, without meaning to, slightly perpetuate the stigma that loneliness is not something you can end. Loneliness is part of the human condition. Mm. It's really part of what it means to be human, that at some point people we love are going to leave. They're going to die. There are going to be moments in which we pass in and out of loneliness. And I think learning to tolerate that and deal with it makes much more sense to me than like let us abolish loneliness like let's abolish rage let's abolish (laughs) sorrow Mm. it just seems
0: what would you advise um to to our listeners you know there must be loneliness listeners um what would you what would you suggest that they do i'm not gonna
2: say go and join a club because i think that's so patronizing Mm -hmm. i think it i think it's much more interesting to embrace your loneliness and to think about it and to become curious about it. Because I think one of the things that loneliness stops you doing is almost thinking at all. It becomes so inhibiting and painful and there's so much effort to just not feel the feeling. But I think actually experiencing it and allowing it to open you up to the feelings that you're having seems much more healthy to me and then I think it moves on anyway as all feelings do, they're so transient. And do you think you can sort of strategize it a
3: little bit so if you actually really looked at it from an analytical kind of point of view and went okay the, the, t- the days which are bad mm. tend to be a Saturday morning or they're a Friday mm. night or it's a Sunday evening and then god forbid you necessarily have to join the club but you can kind of work out ways that might help that mm. in that moment I mean as long mm. as you're physically able which obviously is a huge problem for a lot of people Absolutely. who have loneliness you can get out and do something and like I find a physical change of environment can be hugely useful in just making me feel differently about how I'm feeling it just sort of changes the sort of tempo a little bit. Well
0: well, my (laughs) advice would be to Listen to podcasts because podcasts are for people who don't have friends. And,
1: uh, <laughs> this is Alistairian. This,
0: this podcast Sorry must listeners. be um, the extreme version of that. I think we have, pod, podcasts are very popular with podcast. lighthouse keepers and prisoners in solitary confinement.
1: Monks, yeah. Great. <laughs> would okay. you agree with that? I would not agree with that, no.
0: Olivia, Joe, thank you very much for coming <laughs> on the
1: podcast. You. <laughs>
2: I love your sabotage. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. End, you didn't amazing. want me. You was going to say that. <laughs> I've never
0: seen
1: anyone do quite that before. Should defend everybody uh, in one fell swoop. <laughs> I always think though that podcast
3: listening is like you have to really define your time to listen because it can't be too noisy. Like I can't listen to them on the tube or anything. So no. I, li- I can't hear anything. You have to be in like the dog bath. walking. Yeah, you. But you I really need cycle. to be on Walking's your own. Dangerous. Yeah. You can't just casually yeah. be having a podcast on and someone else in the room just does so you work. do
2: have to be a lighthouse keeper
3: you yeah. really have to be in solitude <laughs> I find like really kind of like sen- I need to make sensory deprivation sort of tank to the podcast. otherwise I'm like oh
0: perfect perfect for a lonely person <laughs> <laughs> right have brilliant Yes, yeah?
4: cool you. thank you
1: so next we have Lawrence Scott Al tell me about him
0: well his big claim to fame obviously is that he's Writes for the FT Weekend. Mm -hmm. He is also an extremely interesting and original thinker. He's a philosopher, broadcaster, and author of a new book, "Picnic, Comma, Lightning," which is which is a great title. You'll agree.
1: It's a quite confusing title as well. What does that mean?
0: Yeah, it comes from Nabokov's Lolita. When the narrator explains how describes how his mother died, he just puts in brackets, "Picnic, comma, lightning." It's rather beautiful. And so this book is a look at, well, the subtitle is In Search of a New Reality. So that's quite a big deal, isn't it? That's not. That's covering a lot. Mm-hmm. And he's looking at how we are today.
1: Is it about loneliness?
0: Partly. It's partly a memoir, partly a look at all kinds of neurological research and philosophy. But I think that the inspiration for the book comes from the death of his parents, the opening line of this book is while I was in my early 30s my parents died in impolite succession so in this book he looks at how his sense of reality was both like radically sharpened by his grief and sense of loneliness and altered but also kind of sort of distance that's in fact it sort of lent his vision of the world a sort of sense a sort of taste of almost unreality. Lawrence, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
4: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So your new book, Picnic, Lightning, why have you called it that?
4: (laughs) Well, I remember where where I was where I chose that title. I just had a tuna fish sandwich. (laughs) I was walking (laughs) along. I thought, what will I call this book? I'd just been reading uh, Vladimir Nabokov's memoir and was sort of getting back into his way of thinking. And I remembered this line from Lolita that had made me laugh years ago and it comes early in the book when the narrator humbert humbert is describing his mother's death he says my very photogenic mother died when i was 3 and then he opens brackets and says writes picnic with a little comma lightning and brackets And to me, it was just this perfectly brutal summation of his character in a very short space within a single sentence, because that's all he says of the mother's death pretty much for the whole book. So it's just this complete neurosis that he's trying to pack within these brackets. The structure of the book was going to be sort of a mix of my own sort of grief memoir in a sense, because both my parents died uh, when I was 30 and then 32. And I wanted to use sort of the personal aspects for a more broader consideration on what A real person is and what is the nature of reality today because when someone dies if you're bereaved of someone these very real solid people suddenly become these interior beings of your own mental life who sort of come and go and their ages switch and it's a very weird idea of what a real person is because as much as they're gone they can somehow seem more real to you than living people in some ways
0: it's a beautiful Mm -hmm. philosophical work Mm -hmm. but as you say also an elegy to your parents. How does that actual title yeah. sum up your own sense of grief, but also yeah. sense of reality?
4: Right. Well, what I th- loved about the the line "picnic, comma lightning" as well was that it had the mundane and the sublime sort of packed together. So we had this sort of the everyday, sort of domesticated pleasurable times you know that sort of embodied in the picnic and then just a little bit of punctuation the comma separating us from this true thing that comes forking down into our lives so I was interested in those moments of life where the real seems to burst through into our everyday domesticated stories of our lives with the rug and the hamper and champagne flutes maybe depending on how posh your picnic is.
0: (laughs) Grief is essentially a private thing is it not and yet A lot of the book is, and and your previous book, is about the world in which we live and being Mm. one of of hyper-connectivity and through social media. Do you see the times in which we live as antithetical towards privacy?
4: Well, I think one of the strangest things about these times in terms of reality is that our private realities, what we would call privacy, are really blurring with our public lives as citizens, as workers. So this gap between the public and the private reality So, for example, you see online people announcing deaths of loved ones and their grief-stricken moments, but it becomes this strange broadcasted experience, which I think I would hazard to guess doesn't really bear much resemblance to the strange, very silent business of grieving. So, for instance, in the book, you know, I'm writing about grief and I know that's going to be for public consumption. And even my tone in writing some of those scenes might seem a bit odd, sort of darkly comic one minute or maybe even flippant or in its own way brutal moments, there was no tone I could find that was sombre or serious enough for the truly private reality of such Mm -hmm. loss. There is always a sense that the performance of anything in public will be a strange version that isn't fully real with with your own reality that's going on in your heads. But if we extend this on from just experiences of death and grief, how do we sort of express any sorts of private feelings in this overblown, overexposed, socially mediated sphere?
0: Through writing the book, did you come to know your grief better? Did it help?
4: No, I don't think it helped. I don't think writing is sort of a form of therapy in that way. (laughs) Um, I don't think...
0: Even as a way of just articulating how you felt and and sharing it, so that perhaps you might Mm. feel less lonely.
4: The most consoling aspect really was getting some of my parents' personality on the page, which wasn't so much about my grief but about almost creating some tribute to them and getting a, a just a flavor of them as I experienced them as people, but by articulating it.
0: I've been I have a, a son who's mm. who's been born with a very rare condition and I've resisted writing about him so far because I feel that the minute I do somehow that'll somehow be crystallized. Yeah. that that is yeah. will become the reality, I and mean, the reality is much more complex and nuanced yeah. than that I can fit in a seven hundred and fifty word column. Yeah. And that, therefore, by by you writing this book, you've yeah. there it is. There are your parents. Is that how you feel?
4: Early on in the book, I thought about our, how our reality today is constructed, and you look at so much of the language around how a person moves around the world in the digital age, and it's so linked to storytelling. We're encouraged all the time to think of our lives as a story. Social media stories, you know, those short little ephemeral bursts of pictures or with captions that you can post and then disappear after 24 hours. Tech giants are saying this is the future of how our social media persona will be packaged for people. The story is sort of this currency of being. I was born in 1980, and I remember in the 90s being quite young, but listening to Oprah as I was in Canada at the time. And she was talking about then being the hero of your own life, and you're in charge of your own narrative. Virginia Woolf talks about sort of how we walk down the street building the street up and telling ourselves almost the story of it. The way it's been corporatized and commercialized as a, as a mode of getting us to engage online so that we can share our data and keep the whole social media engine going. I don't think it's been quite, the story has been quite commodified in that way. But going back to then the, the idea of writing about sort of your loved ones, yeah, I, I was wary of the story because as ubiquitous as it is, it's a really Divisive technology. You know, as you're saying, the story emits as much as it includes by nature. Mm-hmm. It creates this little space of meaning that's sort of fortified, but around the darkness outside of everything that isn't in the story is left out. And there's real power dynamics in who gets to tell what stories, who's the storyteller. So it's a very tricky business. And what in the book, I wanted to show ways in which perhaps stories can be unraveled or told from multiple angles so that they're not a sealed little fortress, that they're something that undoes themselves. And I think in the narrative of the memoir that runs through the book with my parents, I try to show them perhaps from sometimes contradictory or partial angles, always just glancing at them and never hoping never to suggest this is them. The subtitle
0: is In Search of a New Reality.
4: Do we need a new reality? For me, the subtitle is about the the post-grief reality that I was entering.
0: It's your search for a new reality rather than... The West's search for oh, a I new reality. I think
4: we are in a phase, not of a complete break with the past, but the amount, the level or the extent to which we think about the realness of things. Reality is, is on people's lips and minds much more as a concept. And there's been no point in human history where... Humans have walked around in this perfect match with the world around them. They see there's always been skepticism, a sense of metaphysical otherness, that that there's a, another realm that is the true reality and that we're walking through sort of a haze of simulations. Plato's cave analogy where he says that, you know, life is just a play of shadows on a cave wall and the reality is elsewhere. I'm not sure that this time isn't unique in, in the extent to which whether something is true or false or has it really happened has ever been as dominant as it is now. So when a news event happens, our first sort of re- response to it isn't the morality of it. Is this good or bad? It's is this true or is this false? So fake news, fake news, and beyond that, I think. On the one hand, we have all these technologies that can record what really happened. We're going around with smartphones in our pockets. We're a data-driven society, which is very empirical in saying this is the truth. This is what's happening. And yet none of this data is really bringing us any more consolation that we're living in the real world. We have hyper empiricism on one hand and this sense of huge skepticism on the other. And I think that tension's really fascinating.
0: Do you think it's an exciting time to live?
4: For sure. I mean, um, I think it's fairly exhilarating and terrifying. And what's running under all of this That in both of my books. My first book, The Four-Dimensional Human, also talked about this, that With climate change, there's this strange sort of hum of an irrefutable truth happening all around us, and even that is being denied and is surrounded by the language of hoaxes and Happening outside right now. I mean, yes. (laughs) 100 degree heat. It's very clear. So I think there's this baseline of reality which is not particularly exhilarating. It's fairly frightening.
0: I can't find you on Twitter.
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, not by accident.
0: (laughs) I mean, for someone who's dare I say obsessed <laughs> yeah, yeah. with connectivity and social yeah. media. You've bypassed
4: it. Maybe my obsession is the reason why I bypassed it. I I mean I lurk on Twitter, so I can You follow people I, fo-
0: uh, I mean you stalk people.
4: Yeah, so do I suppose yeah. Let's put it that way. Why not? You're talking about the quiet voice. I think for a writer, Twitter, I have a too addictive a personality. I think I'll get into these conversations that would puncture the the hours of time that it takes to get a paragraph out, you know. <laughs> so if I started a Twitter conversation, I'd just be checking that all the time. But I I mean, one of the strange things about Twitter for me is that it's really emblematic of the problems we have in finding what scale we have, what size is a person now, or how big is a person when they manifest in public. And what I mean by that is you can be thinking out loud and form those ideas into a tweet and tweet it and all of a sudden it's sort of replicated and it becomes viral and millions of people have seen it. So it was an offhand comment suddenly has the form and the weight and the heft of this big edict. It's like it's one of the 10 commandments. Yeah. And I'm really interested in that idea of the small voice that becomes amplified. And of course this has huge progressive liberal possibilities that just having the tyrants and the rulers being able to have the big booming voices isn't a great way to organize society either but our social lives are changing in the sort of gulliver's travels ways where we keep swinging between quite sort of irrelevant private citizens and suddenly we may be dragged into this strange blown out limelight where a quite offhand comment from maybe eight years ago is suddenly getting us fired yeah. i mean that is that is a new sort of paradigm that we're in that wasn't happening 20 years ago but
0: it won't be happening to you
4: no no <laughs> well yeah the occupation so do you has- hate twitter People use Twitter for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. that it's really hard to sort of be pious in anyone. one No, way. I
0: mean the, the screaming, the volume yeah. of noise. It's an adversarial yeah. Yeah. platform, isn't I, it, essentially?
4: I mean, it's not working out. I'd put it this way. The early experiment, I think it's, you know, endless studies are saying that it's sort of making people anxious and depressed. We can say that it allows sort of protests to mobilize and all the rest of it, but are there alternative architectures for these sort of social media platforms that wouldn't have wouldn't leave people as vulnerable to the bile and that strange shouting quality Um, and I'm not sure that it's sort of the best way to sort of fragment your everyday into these small snippets that you're checking all the time. I think that's deliberately addictive and I think there's other ways of arranging sort of a, a communal civic agora online or a marketplace of ideas online. Do you see yourself as part of a philosophical tradition? No, I think that would be too grand a term for me. And um, I'm not... I see myself in more of a literary tradition, actually, if that doesn't seem as grand. There's certain writers who no, speak to No, that's to me. fine. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow the philosophers seem yeah. slightly higher on the scale of pretentiousness yeah. than writers, but I feel very much in the sort of the wimpish... Slightly paranoid, nostalgic tradition of, say, E.M. Forster, who he saw sort of an aeroplane flying overhead in 1904, I think it was, and thought, that is the end. That's the end of my beloved pastoral England. Um, and he was really shaken by this. So I have that sort of timorous quality, and I'm not even quite brave enough to sort of mount a resistance against it. I'm always. Are you a technophobe? I'm fairly phobic of people with smartphones, and I am genuinely really depressed by what smartphones have done to. Say the younger generation, just from as far as I can see it, sort of how they socialize in person. You know, I teach a lot of students, and in some cases, you know, you expect to come back from a break and you'll hear the roar of just sort of student chat. And that does happen in some classrooms, but others I come back and it's this deathly silence where they're getting there. It's almost their cigarette break because I don't allow them to have any technology while I'm lecturing. So as soon as there's a break, They sort of have to sort of catch up with this other digital sphere. I'm depressed when people display sort of an accidental offhand contempt for the present moment and how exciting it is just to look at someone and talk to them by interacting with someone remotely. I think that's a real injury to the present. It's not just me who's noticing this, obviously, and there's something in the air where we're trying to limit use of these highly addictive devices.
0: Okay, so we're all connected. Addicted, mm. apart from you, to. to I know. I'm. To, to, no,
4: I'm. I'm very addicted. I'm we're very all addicted.
0: addicted. It's 34 degrees yeah. in London. Trump threatens nuclear war mm. by Twitter, on and on. Do you think we're approaching the apocalypse?
4: I have a hunch, not despite all <laughs> signs to the contrary. And there's something unreal about his tweets, isn't there? Anyway, there was one recently, you know, about the yeah the threatening nuclear war and caps. It's almost like picnic comma lightning. Again, just the sort of the syntax is so strange and it's about brackets and commas. But the all caps is particularly poignant and slightly blustery and unreal somehow. I mean, what do, was... Do you think the, the all caps made it scarier? No. The, well, there's always a, a comic tone with him and I think that sort of, there was sort of a pathos to it. I mean, let's put it this way. The, what the Trump phenomenon seems to be is what I was talking about in this complete collapse between the public and the private sphere. And he totally blends the two all the time so that he's announcing these future foreign policy missions sort of at 11 at night, sort of on his own in his room. That is totally weird. And I'm hoping that this is all part and parcel of a recalibration where we do find a more robust civic space that isn't drenched in the personal. And hopefully from some of the political chaos that we're seeing ensuing at the moment, there will be change at the personal level and the how we interact with one another and our devices because I think all of this is all bundled together. We can't sort of separate out Silicon Valley from Trump, I don't think.
0: So where do we go from from this connectivity? I'm, I'm asking you just to predict the future.
4: Mm-hmm. Oh shall I predict the future? Um, I think and we're already beginning to see it. I think we'll see a weariness for being exposed in that way. I think we haven't I don't think we have the stomach to go on like this. And I think the younger generation are already much cannier, much warier about what they put of themselves online because they feel surveyed and they're much more strategic about how they present themselves. So for them, it doesn't feel like fully like private life being put into the public stage. It's it's always sort of a curated version of themselves. I wish I had more solid predictions for the future. I think what it will be will be a return to the joys of just immediacy I think there's so much already in the air about taking Sabbaths from digital devices or creating zones of the house that are free from it. It's an old idea in that sense, sort of a, a romanticism of the wilderness or the undocumented. We'll be
0: going back to public libraries and things like that, real real books and things well, like that. Well, ho- let's hope so. At
4: least real <laughs> chats with people that aren't sort of, sort of skewered all the time by um, smartphones because I was chastised very early on when I was in my early 20s for using a cell phone and texting under the table. And I was at sort of a gathering of about eight people and I was called a really rude word and um, just completely shamed. And maybe that's part of my sort of primal <laughs> digital <laughs> moment, my neurosis. I haven't recovered. And I think it it could become just the shame of interrupting someone who's in front of you just to check your uh, Instagram. May The etiquette may evolve just to be uh, be such a no-no. And nothing is fixed in these regards. So we may be going through quite adolescent period that will then just seem really uncool and weird and lame to the next generation.
0: So Trump might not be there forever. It might rain and Mm -hmm. we might start talking to each other again. Let's hope so. Lawrence, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
4: Thank you, it's been such a pleasure.
1: That's it for this week. Lawrence Scott's new book, Picnic Comma Lightning in Search of a New Reality is out now.
0: Next time we hear Grizz's voice, she'll be a married woman. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> you can also buy The Lonely City by Olivia Lang, as well as her new novel, Crudo.
1: And you can read Joe Ellison's weekly columns at
0: FT.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you on Facebook or by email. Everything else at FT.com. And please do leave
1: us a rating or review, or both at Apple Podcasts.
0: Everything Else is produced by Chica Airs. We've been Grizzanel. And our music is composed by Mendelssohn. (laughs) (laughs) Planning for your next trip?